Game Changers. The show about the people who make the shows, not the people behind the scenes, not the companies. The people behind the mics. Behind the mics. The people who put it all on the line. The people who put their personalities and lives on display every day and invite you to either love them or hate them. This is Game Changers, Series 3, UK. Hi, this is Craig Bruce and welcome back to Game Changers, Series 3, UK. Hey, firstly, thanks so much for the amazing response to our interview with Christian O'Connell last week. You know, doing breakfast radio in London for over 10 years is clearly no fluke. You know, you've got to have some really special qualities to thrive in such a tough market. And it was pretty clear from our chat that Christian is made of the right stuff. And so is our next guest, Ken Bruce. Play the music that you think is right, and your audience will soon let you know if they don't like it. But you choose the music and surprise them. Don't keep playing the same tracks on rotation 14 times a day. We play any track maximum of five times a day. Any new track. Wow. Five times maximum if it's on our playlist. So, you know, there's a huge, vast area of music that can be played by any station that calls itself a music station. So why are you restricting yourself? So Ken Bruce speaks to an average weekly audience of over 8 million people on Radio 2. It's the second largest radio audience in Europe, and he's been doing it for over 30 years, which just blows my mind. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I took myself off the air at the ripe old age of 37 was because I just couldn't muster the enthusiasm and energy required to be on the radio every day. I'd I'd just run out of steam. But Ken Bruce couldn't be more engaged and focused. I mean, he takes the same professional approach into every on-air moment, and for that reason, he's still at the top of his game and widely regarded as one of the best music presenters in the UK. You're going to love his story. Uh, Like so many of radio's game changers, both here in Australia and in the UK, it's a story of perseverance, and it's a story of someone who's found his calling. You know, he's turned a passion or a hobby into a job, and he's still completely in love with it. Ken Bruce is our next UK radio game changer. Enjoy. Ken Bruce, welcome to Game Changers. Thank you very much, Craig. Um, are you uh, well, well, an we ancient should... <laughs> uh, relative of mine? Huh? Just to answer that question to start. No, we're not related, but um, I'm, I look, I'm proud of my Scottish heritage, as I'm sure you are. You're born and bred. My, so my grandmother was a McDonald and she married a Bruce. So I'm Scottish through and through, although I've never been to Scotland, but I, you know, well, so, no, we're not related. You should do. I'm not related to Robert the Bruce either. Oh. Uh, I uh, Somebody did, very kindly did, my family tree and went, got back to my father, of course. My grandfather was mm. uh, James Bruce. Right. And uh, the bloke who was doing the discovery uh, discovered that my grandfather had been born three years after the death of the man who was ostensibly his father, Mr. Bruce. So, um, I mean, unless there was some medical intervention there, I haven't heard about it. I don't think I am genuinely a Bruce. And uh, as the, the genealogist said to me, I don't think you're related to Robert the Bruce. Maybe Robert the Milkman. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go right back to the start. You were 15 when you put your hand up to do radio in uh, in Scotland or when you were interested in radio. That, what initially attracted you to it? I'm never quite sure. But at the age of 15, I did think, oh, I like that. I, you know, I started properly listening to the radio i'd been obviously hearing it before that and you know listening to a bit of pop music radio radio luxembourg uh things like that radio scotland um the uh, pirate station 
But it was at the age of 15, I suddenly I was hearing the BBC and thinking, do you know, that sounds like something I would like to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it was. I'm, I've since I've said, well, you know, I grew up in a family of talkative people. I mean, I, I'm one of four siblings, and the three older ones, the youngest of four, the three older ones were quite gobby, you know, quite chatty, quite mm-hmm. mouthy, uh, funny, you know, quick lines, speedy responses, you know, Bat- banter and patter and uh, I didn't often get the chance to get a word in <laughs> chuck in I occasionally did get one good line in yep. and they always uh, all turned around and looked at me and said oh it speaks does it kind of thing you know <laughs> um, so maybe it was an opportunity just to make myself heard right. without interruption uh, so maybe that's why I thought radio was the thing to be also it was a performance thing and I was in a way, a performer at heart, but too shy and, uh, you know, not really outgoing enough to be a, a stage performer or a singer or anything like that. And besides, I didn't have any talent in that <laughs> regard. That's not the major point. So, um, you know, radio started seemed to me like something I could do. And uh, that uh, from there, uh, it took a long time for me to actually get in, but it, uh, that's where it started. Well, well, let's talk a little about that time that it took to get in. So, rejected initially by uh, the BBC in Scotland and at the age of 18. Yeah, yeah. That would have been um, enough for most people to go, okay, well, maybe that's not the job for me. Why did yeah. Why did you not see it that way? Um, because I thought, I'm too young. I thought, but it's a, it's a grown-up's job, and I'm not a grown-up. And I certainly wasn't. I mean, I was uh, still at school, really. I was just leaving school, and uh, I hadn't seen the world or anything like that. And I uh, just immediately wrote to BBC Scotland thinking, oh, you know, maybe they'll have me. I didn't think, yes, they'll have me. I right. thought, maybe they'll have me, but I thought, I'm really too young. So when they rejected me, they were perfectly pleasant about it, and they rejected me, I went to British Forces Broadcasting Service because I thought, well, this will get me abroad and it will be a good experience to get in. And they rejected me as well, but they were very encouraging. And that was enough to keep me interested, kept the, the, the kettle boiling, or at least, uh, you know, simmering. Right. Um, they you know, sent me away with the usual kind of, we'll keep you on file, which I believed <laughs> idiotically. I thought, oh, they've got a file with my name on it. And they're just sort of thinking, oh, yeah, we'll just draw that file. Oh, yes, the little boy, Bruce, he'll do. He'll do nicely. Yes, we'd waiting for the opportunity to use him. Uh, of course, you know, no, nothing like that. However, when I did my audition at BFBS down here in London, I... Um, the engineer, I'd met him outside having a smoke afterwards, and he said, "Have you?" Do-? He was an Australian, actually, strangely enough. Right. And he said, uh, "Have you done this sort of thing before?" And I said, "No, no, no. I'm, I'm just trying to get in." He said, "Well, you're better than most of the people we have coming in here." And I thought, "All right, that's good." That when that was the first thing that anybody had said, which was not a formal response. Mm. And I thought, "Well, if he's an engineer in the studio. And he's heard a bit. He's heard he, a yeah. bit, and he thinks I've got something." Mm. Then. You know, I'll keep that. So uh, tell me about hospital radio. How does that work? So it's obviously played in hospitals. What's the thing behind it? What's the... Um, it, it, I didn't realise it was a peculiarly uh, British thing, but it, it, it seems to be. It's um, a, a service for patients in hospital uh, and peculiarly, you know, absolutely designed for them. It's not a, a, a community station or something that's for a general audience. Mm. It is particularly aimed at hospital patients and um i to begin with i wasn't sure i thought well what's the point of this too but then when you do the ward rounds which you know is part of the job of being on hospital radio you can't, don't just get in to be a disc jockey and go yeah here i am yo, yo, yo. <laughs> uh, you do have to go around the wards and speak to the patients and um i had one person say to me in uh, early on say you've no idea how important it is to have somebody speaking just to you 
and knowing what you're going through. And even though we don't know in particular terms, in detailed terms, what they're suffering from or what their treatment is, um, it, it seemed to be something better than listening to a national or a local radio station because it was aimed directly. And they could also get their own choice of music. You know, they could hand in a request and get it played that night and hear the name. Uh, and it works on a very direct, personal level. Uh, uh, and that showed to me that hospital radio is important. But it also proved to me what I still feel is the great truth about radio is that it's one person talking to another person but it's one person at either end. It's not a, a broad mass of people. It's not 15 people in the studio having a party and a million people listening. It's one person in the studio, maybe two, three, you know, maybe a conversation going on in the studio. But at best, it's one to one. Uh, and that worked in hospital radio, and I think that works in radio across the world. And, and it's really interesting you would say that because uh, I think if we all think of radio as one-on-one and the intimacy of it. Um, I think one of the things that most really good presenters work out is it needs to be framed in that context uh, for it to be genuinely impactful. It has to be framed in that way, in that one-on-one approach versus a, a one-to-many approach. Uh, and certainly it's a common theme with all of the people that I've spoken to over the last couple of series is that they really um, instinctively understand that, 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 that the framing of those conversations needs to be intimate for it to work um, effectively. That's right. It doesn't have to be literally one-to-one. Yeah. Um, you can have two people in the kitchen listening yep. and you can have two or three people in the studio talking to each other. But as long as the conversation in the studio is aimed outwardly and not inwardly, if you've got three people in the studio talking to each other without a thought for the person at the other end of the radio, yep. then that's never going to work as radio. It's going to be a lovely conversation for you guys, <laughs> but it's not going to work at the other side. But if, if everybody in the studio is working out, working through the microphone to the other end, then it's going to work. So it doesn't have to be one-to-one, but it should have that basis as it, the pure communication. So for the Australian component of this audience, um, Ken has uh, 8 million listeners uh, <laughs> Yeah, I said 8 million. I mean, Australia has a population of 24 million, if you don't mind, Ken. Okay, right It's insane. So I guess that you have to think of it in those smaller terms for it to oh, yeah. make any sense at all for uh, you, don't Absolutely. I, do, I mean, that figure means nothing <laughs> right. I mean, to me. I mean, it's just, it's just a figure. Uh, and it's only a measure of um, the worth of the program. Uh, but it's not, a, a, it's not something that ever comes into my mind in the studio here. Yeah. Um, if it did, I think the whole thing would fall apart. The house of cards would collapse mm. immediately. But uh, it's it's a, me- a sign of su- a success in a way, and it's a very good thing to point to when uh, you know you're talking to the BBC about uh, whatever's going on. Uh, we all, as well as that, that's you know a nice figure to have. Something I'm slightly more pleased about is the share, which is the percentage of radio listening mm-hmm. that we and we have. It varies from quarter to quarter, year to year, but it's over 20% share, 21, 22, 23, I think we had 24 once, which is, you know, one in four of the listening population in the country. Now that, that, see, that makes me think, okay, well, I think we've cracked it. Part of it is that we have a a quiz every day, a Popmaster quiz, uh, which we've run for 15 years or more, uh, and it is a must-listen kind of component. So how have you made it a must-listen? Because it's different to most quizzes where, you know, coming from a commercial background, um, you know, radio quizzes go for 60 seconds. 
you know, if you get the one caller on and get them to ask, answer the questions and move on, yours is, can run across 30 it's or 40 minutes. 20, 20, 20 minutes. 20 minutes it will run, yeah. uh, usually with a, a, a piece of music in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. why does it work? What, what's, what's behind it? It's worse because, I, I like to think it works because we've taken it seriously. Um, the questions are... Not easy questions. They are not insultingly simple questions. You know, you, you watch in this country some of these uh, television shows where they give you a multiple choice question, you know, and you say, what is the capital of France? Is it A, Paris, B, an orange, or C, the moon? <laughs> you know, and you think, oh, dear, that's a and tough one. And, and then you do you find people who get it wrong. You know? <laughs> uh, so, no, we've set the bar quite high on the quiz. The questions are tough. Um, you so should devil's advocate on that. Yeah. Though. So, so if the questions are tough, does that discount a huge portion of the audience? I don't think so. I think, um, uh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I've got a set of questions here. Let me just see if you can answer. This is uh, the one we did this morning. Question one: Who sang the 1976 duet "Don't Go Breaking My Heart" with Elton John? Well, that was Kiki D. It was. See, that's the first simple question. So we ask, a, we ask a straightforward right. question okay. first. So you've there, you've got, me in, you've got points. But then you get things like, um, um, were, were the early 60s... Oh, that, that, that's actually quite new. Let me find you a difficult question from one of the other ones. Um, which American singer had hits in the mid-70s with the songs I Can't Leave You Alone, I Ain't Lion, and It's Been So Long? Um... You'd have to hum a few bars. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, one. you see, that's about. I mean, yeah. You've got five, do you, do you, five seconds to right. answer that. You don't play some don't audio play, at that moment. We no? do in some questions, right. but not the. So the answer is George McRae, internationally. But that's not an easy question. Mm. So you've got to have some knowledge. We've got a total of 39 points in each round, and anybody who scores above 27 or something like that is really knowledgeable. Mm. So we only have in the year uh, maybe half a dozen to 10. People with full points. And then we do a playoff at the end of the year to show who's the pop master. So it's a difficult quiz, and people listen to it because this is a great quizzing nation. The UK yep. is a huge quizzing nation. You've watched television. There are quizzes wall to wall. People like that kind of knowledge, and they like showing it off, and they respect people who know a lot about it. So how long has that been a part of the of your show? You've been a part of this radio station now for over... 30-odd 30, 30 years. Right, yeah. 1982? Uh, 1982 I did yeah. my first uh, sort of depping work for uh, established uh, presenters, and then I got my own... Saturday night show in 1984. There's an interesting story behind that first early breakfast yeah, scenario. Yeah, yeah. I was um, depping for the early breakfast show. Uh, Ray Moore was the presenter, who happened to be a friend of mine, and uh, I thought, yeah, I thought he was marvellous. Mm. He was a fantastic. Uh, I think he was still just about the best radio presenter I ever heard. Between him and Terry Wogan, the two best radio presenters I ever heard. Uh, however, I, I was depping for him, and I had a show in Scotland at the time, and um, I came in at 4 o'clock in the morning and did the show from 5 until 7.30, at which time Terry Wogan was scheduled to come in. He was, the, without doubt, at that time, the king of radio, of breakfast radio, of all radio in this country. Uh, and um, it was, you know, he was just riding the crest of a wave, absolutely huge audience figures. So I did my little show, and um, the first day I'd done on national uh, radio too. And at seven thirty, I was all ready to hand over to Terry when they came in and said he's not he's not made it in. He slept in. He's going to be late. He's going to be late. Keep going. Here's his box of records and his running order. Literally a box of records. Literally a box of records. <laughs> We've still got. We still use those boxes. I can see a turntable uh, in the, 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 the background. Yeah, yeah. We still have those boxes, yeah. which are built to carry albums, twelve-inch right. albums, uh, and we still use them for carrying pens and stuff like that and headphones. But uh, they brought the box of records in and the running order and said, "Just keep going, and he'll be here soon." 
So this was at 7.30 and I just played records and chatted. So and how did you feel at that time? Were you nervous or did well, you feel no. like there was more pressure? Or No, it was a strangely sort of um, equable feeling. Uh, I didn't feel, I just felt, oh, I've done two and a half hours. Right. So I'll just carry on. Sure. And I thought, uh, oh, this is this will be fun. And it will, I thought, well, every five minutes later you listen, more people hear you. So that's good, you know, because the audience at that time of the morning is building, building, building. Mm. So I thought, well, this will do me no harm, is all I thought. Uh, and I had to go for on for an hour um, till eight thirty, <laughs> uh, by which time I was sort of starting to think, "Please make it stop." And then Terry came in, and was there a reason that he was running late? Was um, it, did he, he have a good reason? He or? slept in. It was simple <laughs> as that. And then because he he was not a man who you know got up tremendously early and came in an hour before his transmission, he had it down to the line. <laughs> I know a few he of was, those. He, he was on air at seven thirty. He came in at seven twenty-five. You know. Uh, and he would drive in from his home in Berkshire, but he slept in by only about half an hour. Mm, traffic starts and to pick up. But the traffic yeah. was huge, mm. and he was a, a full hour late by the time he got in. So uh, the press were all over it afterwards. Uh, and I got huge publicity out of it because Terry sleeps in, uh, young unknown. Uh, I mean, I was 33 or something, 32, something like that. No, 31. Uh, and so I wasn't that young. But I, I was to the, the national audience, audience yeah, sure. completely unknown. Yep. And I, um, I, I benefited from that because it, it made not just the wider public know the name mm. but the bbc suddenly thought hello he can you know he could do that he can maybe do something else and how long after that did you move into the morning shift it was about three three more years okay. um because um it was 82 i did that and then i got a few more depths doing mm. little bits and bobs but i did have you know a, a show in scotland that i thought was my you know that was my job that was right. my bread and butter but I did want to go on radio too at some point, and uh, they gave me the Saturday Late Show, and I thought, well, this is great, this is fantastic, I can do my week daily weekday show in Scotland, come down to London for the weekends. Mm. Uh, it didn't do my marriage any good, but I mean, I was because I'm away from home a lot. Yep. But I, um, it certainly did my career a lot of good, and I thought that's as good as it's, it can get. And more from Ken Bruce in just a couple of moments. If you're listening to this on iTunes, hey, leave us a review. Look, it really helps us share these stories around the world. And I'd love to know where you're listening from right now. You can drop me a note on Twitter at CB underscore Bruce. There is plenty more to come in Season 3 of Game Changers. Jamie Thigston, Mike Toolan, Nick Ferrari, Clive Dickens. Some really great interviews on the way. And there is a whole heap more in Seasons 1 and 2, including the man who is our first Game Changer and last week won an ACRA here in Australia for Nova's best on-air team, Kate Ritchie, Tim Blackwell and Marty Sheargold. This is Marty talking about or debunking the myth of the water cooler. This water cooler, whoever came up with talking around the water cooler needs to be flogged. No one talks around the water cooler. People email. No one talks in offices anymore. It's one of the great myths. I walk through that office every day. I've never seen two people standing up having a conversation. I've seen them desperately punching off an email to avoid conversations. There's no this water cooler stuff. You might bump into someone when you're making a cup of tea, and it's light and bright. Mm. It's real light and real bright. That's Marty Shegold in Episode 1 of Game Changers. You can listen to it after you've heard Ken at RadioGameChangers.com. Now, back to Ken Bruce. Terry went off to television to do a a three-day-a-week show, and so couldn't do radio anymore. And um, I thought, well, I might slip in um, in the slipstream. I might get under the coattails, yep. get a show off the back of this. Um, but what I didn't expect and didn't really want was to get his show. 
uh, because um, that was too much for me. Right. At that point, I wasn't a breakfast show presenter. I'm still not a breakfast show presenter. Uh, what is I, the difference? What, how do you know you're not? Uh, I think you have to be a leader of men, uh, a That's leader an of people. interesting point. What do you mean by that? Uh, you have to be the gang leader. You have to be the alpha male. You have to be the one that people want to be in the same group as. You right. have to be the person that, uh, when you open the door and come into the room, everybody turns and looks at. And it's not me. Right. Um, I'm the bloke you stand next to in the pub and have a chat with. Yeah, you're uh, the person who remembers other people's names. And well, it's yeah, interesting, the person that's Jeff Jane, who's organised all of these interviews for me, said, you know what, Ken was the first person presenter in radio to remember my name and... and um, it can't just be the fact that you have a skill for remembering people's names. I think there's a, a level of um, uh, that that's the person you are. Well, I like people. Yeah. I mean, I do like people. I like getting to know people. I like um, being friends with people. Uh, and I like having a wide circle of friends. So maybe that's got something to do with it. I'm also I'm not driven by fame. Right. That's a, a very important factor. I never wanted to be famous. Um, I wanted to be a good radio presenter. Mm. I wanted to be... Um, admired by my peers, mm. I wanted my fellow radio professionals to say, he can do it. Mm. That's as much as I've ever wanted. So everything else has been uh, jam on the top of the, the bread and butter. I've uh, absolutely you know, loved the career, but it's not, it's not about the fame. And if you know, the BBC said to me, right, you've been with us here on Radio 2 for 30-odd years, Time's up, mate. We've we've rumbled you off your pop, you know. <laughs> I say, okay, fair enough. Uh, but I'd probably still do some radio somewhere sure. because yeah, when it's any, in your blood, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, uh, uh, it's not about having a massive audience. It's about having fun. It's interesting. A measure of the impact of uh, Radio Two in this market is this idea that you could fill in for an hour and it become. A, a news story um, and it really is an institution it's a fab part of the fabric of british culture radio too what, what what's at the heart of um this radio station why is it so successful what it's, is it about it it's very difficult to define because it's had you know it, it's had a kind of roller coaster it's not always been massively successful it's going through a very successful period just now uh, partly it's what the rest of the country is doing the rest of the world is doing the rest of the media are doing but uh, also it's, there's a sense of consistency and regularity about radio too uh, when i first came here in the 80s it was a wide outlook station it was a wide demographic station uh, it's back to that now it had a period in the late 80s early 90s where it kind of narrowed its focus right and it went for uh, an older audience um now i, I mean i'm i'm an older person now uh, but and i always liked working to an older audience mm. but not exclusively and i don't i think once you start narrowing your focus down to one particular area of audience mm. then you lose much more than just the other parts of the audience you you lose the reason to listen i don't think older people uh, and as I say, now I am one, I can confirm this. Uh, <laughs> older people don't like to be spoken to no, you, you like be older people. Heart. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're all still young. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's always been true. Yep. Uh, I don't think people uh, aged, you know, late 50s, 60s, 70s wanted to be treated as ancient. Uh, and so I think there was a slight error in our aim then. Uh, however, I stayed here at the time because I thought maybe it's going to get better. There were times when I thought, no, it's not for me anymore. Right. But I thought it's going, it must change. It must go back to what it was in the 80s, which was a Big family station. Right. Uh, Everyone can listen. I think at that time, the demographic of our listenership was 
almost exactly the same proportions in age terms as the general population. So we had, let's say, you know, 15% aged um, 5 to 15, uh, and then, you know, 40% aged, you know, 15 to 40. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we had just about exactly the same demographic as the nation. And I think we pretty much got that. Again, we don't get the 15 to 25s much, but we do get the 5 to 15s. We get everybody from 25 onwards, really. And I think where we score over the commercial stations is that we have a much wider playlist you do don't you it's uh, and that is uh, it almost amazes me that the british commercial radio stations have not said what are radio 2 doing that works so well oh they are they've got a wide really wide playlist let's try that uh, they've never tried it they've continued narrow casting uh, and test marketing tracks uh, to focus groups mm. and i think no no Play the music that you think is right, and your audience will soon let you know if they don't like it. But you choose the music and surprise them. Don't keep playing the same tracks on rotation 14 times a day. We play any track maximum of five times a day, any new track. Wow. Five times maximum if it's on our playlist. And then the older material um, just won't come around within weeks. Mm. So, you know, there's a huge, vast area of music that can be played by any station that calls itself a music station. So why are you restricting yourself? Uh, and it's what we've been doing for years, and that's why we're successful. You talked about professional musicians being um, your soulmates. Mm. Why do you connect with them? I really don't know. Uh, I think what it went back to is when my early days when I was... Uh, an announcer on BBC Scotland. I was reading the news and doing continuity and doing symphony concerts. I was doing band concerts. I was doing comedy shows. You know, it was a general announcing job and I loved it. Absolutely loved it because you did every sort of mm. thing and you had to tailor the, your performance to each job. You know, you didn't do a symphony concert in the same way as you did a DJ show. You did you were a bit more you know, sober, if you like, <laughs> literally as well as metaphorically. Uh, and uh, you just, you know, behave properly. But when I saw the um, professional musicians that I work with, uh, they, you know, were sight readers, uh, jazzers, you know, who were played in, played in a, an orchestra, but they were jazz players mm. who could sight read brilliantly. Uh, and they went into the studio, they sight read, did their job, and then went off and had a drink. And this was what I did as well. Um, I came in, read the news at sight, got it right, and then went off and had a drink. Yeah. Uh, and we all did in those days. Uh, and I immediately had a bond with these people because they were doing the same sort of thing for a different area of performance. But they were doing the same thing as I was. And I admired them. Mm. Uh, and they used to say, oh, well, yeah, but we can't speak like you can. I said, everybody can speak. But we, you know, said, well, <laughs> we can't present like you can. You know, so we had a, a kind of mutual respect for each other. Do you, th- do you think it has... Um that idea is at the essence or at the heart of the success behind Tracks of My Years? Yeah, I I love talking to musicians about what they like. And they love doing that. They love talking about uh, the music they love. Uh, And they're very generous. Um, I, at one point, thought, you know, because I was used to session musicians and, um, you know, orchestral musicians who, you know, have to put the ego to one side. I thought when we started doing this, when you talk to the the major players in rock, they're going to be monstrous. They're going to be horrible. They're going to be people who say, well, they'll choose all their own music. But nobody does that. Uh, And the enthusiasm that people come in with uh, and when they want to share their love of other artists, Mm. it's lovely to see and to experience because they are so genuinely 
keen on sharing that knowledge and saying, oh, well, please listen to this because you'll love it. You know, they really want to, to interest you in what their choices are. Uh, and they're always so generous about other artists and they're always sort of saying, oh, yeah, this guy is so brilliant. Oh, this woman is such a great singer. I can't do things like that. Uh, and I, I love to see people who are hugely successful in their own way uh, being in awe of other successful people and not just because of the success, because of what they do. Do you have a, um, a favourite artist moment with the segment? Do you have one that stands out? Um, the, the ones that stand out are um, things that actually have a, a personal uh, connection to me, where you know, where James Taylor come in one day and uh, somebody whispered in his ear that it was my birthday. And uh, in the middle, he got his guitar on his knee and played Happy Birthday to me. <laughs> and I thought, does this, you know, Pinch yourself. is this actually James Taylor <laughs> is singing Happy Birthday to yeah. me? Does this actually happen? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's it. I, I can go. Was he I, melancholy when he sang it? Or well, did he sound happy? Or? Well, he, he never sounds that happy, does he? <laughs> <laughs> kind of happy birthday. Yeah, yeah have a half-decent birthday. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was actually a very touching moment. I saw a picture with uh, with yourself and Beyonce. Yes. There's one here in the studio with yourself and Kylie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have kept a, a little wall of my wall of it, it tends to be um i'm afraid to say attractive women uh, but uh, <laughs> That's okay. it's just to make them look good against <laughs> of me of course yeah, yeah. um <laughs> what, did yeah. Ky- what did kylie pick for tracks of I, you know i wish i could remember right. I, I can't remember uh, in fact any detail of anybody's uh, choices <laughs> except some of the surprises people um you know chose some unusual things sometimes um, some surprising things. Um, I expected Robert Plant uh, of uh, uh, Led Zeppelin. Uh, Led, sorry, Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin to choose only kind of hairy, mm. you know, rocky things, and he chose very sweet country sounds, right? Uh, by and large, which totally surprised me. And you get something like Paul Weller, who chose um, Percy Faith. Uh, and a summer place, you know, uh, a beautiful sort of chilling, chill piece of music. It was lovely. Uh, and thought, well, Paul Weller likes that. He says, yeah, I used to listen to it when I was a kid. You know, on the radio, it would be playing when we were going holidays yeah, in the car, wow. you know. So, yeah. uh, and that's what I love about the, yeah. the feature, because it's surprising, it's surprising things. Yeah. And it's the childhood memories quite often that come up. It's interesting, people that have success over a long period of time, that there's something that you can attach to that person. So, oh, that's the Ken Bruce, he does this and this, and, and, and tracks of my years would be, along with Popmaster, do, do you see it in, in that way, do you, that these segments and features people attach and remember y- you from and through? Yeah, I think that's true. I um, In the early days, I'm going to say early days, I mean, the first 15, 20 years of my broadcasting life, I thought, a lot, I'm never going to have a catchphrase uh, I, I abhor catchphrases. I think that's the cheapest, you know, trick you can use in any form of entertainment. Have a catchphrase, mm. you know, nudge, nudge. Hey, I'll say my catchphrase. You can all laugh now. I think you just <laughs> come off it, you know. Uh, and I thought I'll never have a catchphrase. But what I didn't have at that time was uh, a memorable thing <laughs> handle mm. that you could get on me. I was just that bloke yeah. on the radio. Yeah. When we started doing Popmaster mm. and Tracks of My Years. Um, these became the ah, these were the, the things you associate. So right. everybody has to have their USP, their unique selling proposition, yeah. and these became mine. I didn't think I needed them beforehand, mm. and I, I didn't start these things as being that. They were just things they to evolved, do for right. a little while. Yeah, uh, and then on Popmaster, um, when we did the what year did this happen? Mm. Usually, people got to within one year, uh, and eventually, I started saying one year out in sheer desperation, <laughs> and that became a catchphrase. <laughs> really? And I didn't. I I don't yeah. want a catchphrase, but it's now on T-shirts. Right. Uh, because I'd say, one year out! <laughs> uh, and 
<laughs> it's because it's, it's so annoying for them and annoying for me because I want people to do well, uh, and that's become a catchphrase. So yeah. having said, I wouldn't have one ever. But I've that's got. but that's that's come from a natural place though. So it's different to you going out of your way to come up with something that's either I not real best or ones, is, best ones always do. Yeah, they? of course. So the other thing you've, you're famous for in in the UK is um, hosting the radio version of um, of Eurovision. Yes, or the yeah. radio broadcast version, yeah. and you've been doing that for a long period of time yeah. now. And a lot of people tell me that they will, and I know Terry hosted the the TV version. A lot of people say that they will watch the the vision and listen to you on the radio. It's, um, yeah, it's lovely to hear that. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think there are vast numbers, put it that way. I mean, people always watch the television version because that's what it was made for. Sure, uh, and uh, to a certain extent, doing a radio commentary is now an anomaly, but we enjoy it. And there is an there's an audience for it, definitely. But it's it's much much smaller than the television audience. And I'm you know, more than happy with that. Uh, but I do enjoy doing it uh, because it, it's one of the last chances you get to just sit and react to something over three hours. And it's three and a half hours. And actually, it was 3.45, I think, last, uh, last year. Um, so it's nearly four hours of uh, live radio. Um, and I love doing it. I think it's just fantastic. Mm. But I'm under no illusions. I mean, the television is what people remember. Terry did it, and uh, Graham Norton does it now. And they both do it brilliantly in different ways mm. but brilliantly both of them yeah. I do my bit uh, and it's complimentary I think I'm delighted if anybody does watch the telly and listen to yeah. me but I do it as a radio broadcast I'm there to describe what's happening to somebody who can't see it and uh, you know one of the best compliments you can have as a broadcaster is he's saying what everyone else is thinking which I hear often about your commentary of Eurovision which almost flies in the face of, of this beautiful natured person that you no doubt are but I've been told that you know you'll go straight to the heart of it if, if yeah, well, someone's not going um, yeah. as well as they I'm, might or. I'm not really a beautiful natured person <laughs> I, you know I, I do like it taking uh, can I say taking the piss of course you can it's I, a podcast I, just, I, should, you say I, can, I can't want. say it on radio too but I, can, I, say, I, I take the piss right. that's what I do that's my speciality okay uh, it's mischievous it's not meant with any yep. you know malign intent I'm not trying to be smart about people I'm not trying to put them down but I just think, yeah, let's take the piss a bit. Uh, and that's what I like to do. Uh, and uh, if I have, you know, a stock in trade, that's what I do. Right. And that's what I do with Eurovision, just gently take the piss. Yeah, does the Baileys help? Do you know, I've given up on the Baileys. Right. Um, Can we explain that to our Australian friends? Yeah, um, Baileys is, uh, well, for those everyone who don't knows know... Baileys. But, I yeah. think everybody knows Baileys. Yeah. As, uh, as, uh, but dear, it's a bit of a tradition. Dear old Terry used to call it a dairy product. <laughs> it's not alcohol, it's a dairy product. Uh, but yeah, we did a Eurovision in, uh, one of the many we did in Ireland, in Dublin, and one occasion where we were, the um, commentary boxes, which are always high up and at the back, just behind us, they had a free Baileys bar. Uh, which wasn't being well attended because of the situation. It was miles away from most people. So um, when it got to, you know, halfway through, and I, I had a bit of a break because there was some music on, I, I sort of bumped on the door next door where Terry was doing his stuff, and I said, shall I get some drinks? Uh, and, oh, yeah, yeah, and I think it was Kevin Bishop who was producing at the time uh, with him, and I had Paul Walters with me. So I came back with four Baileys uh, and put it down, and, oh, this is nice, a little sip of Baileys. Oh, it's just, just right. It's just <laughs> enough, you know, for you to carry on doing your commentary. And there's, uh, then somebody else popped out for a few, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. All the three Baileys kept coming in, and we found it enhanced the evening considerably. <laughs> it made it much, much more watchable. The singing got better as it went so along. So ever since then, or certainly the years after that, we uh, smuggled in a bottle of Baileys. Right. Somebody would uh, get a bottle of Baileys and take it in. And then when Eurovision stopped allowing you to bring in drinks so they could sell more from their bars, mm. 
um, what uh, Kevin Bishop did was he would decant a bottle of Bailey's into uh, a litre bottle of water. He'd obviously take the water out first and then decant it into this litre bottle and we'd bring it in in the bags and uh, we'd just show it to people <laughs> as they went through the security and if anybody said, what is this? They'd say, ah, it's coffee. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, all right. Then. You could have it. <laughs> so you could like to bring in coffee. So yeah. we'd have that, and we'd. Um, but when uh, Terry stopped doing it, we stopped doing the Baileys basically, right. because um, uh, as I've got older, I can't actually drink very much at all during the commentary. Otherwise, I'm falling asleep because <laughs> it's getting late. You see, and it's past my bedtime usually when it finishes. So um, I don't really drink until the end. Now, Terry Wogan, friend, mentor, both. Yes, both. He was a friend to me, a colleague and a friend. Uh, he was never somebody who would offer advice. You know, you get some people saying, you know what you're doing wrong, or, you know, you know what you should be doing. He would never do that. He would, um, if you asked, he would say, yeah, maybe you could, you know. But he would never offer advice, even though he was hugely steeped in knowledge of the business and a, a terrific judge. He knew how to, you know, he would he judged his own career perfectly, and I, I, I valued his views on matters, but he would never offer uh, either criticism or advice. And let, if you asked for it, he would possibly give you a little advice or say, you know, I'll carry on doing that, that works. He would never criticise. Uh, because, uh, I think I heard him once say, you know, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Mm. I could say, you know, uh, that, that person's getting it all wrong, but they're successful. So, you know, I may think it's rubbish, but if it's successful, what do I know? Uh, and so he was a kindly um, person, but never overbearing. Uh, and he was the prime example of what I mentioned earlier on, the alpha male, because he was somebody who just attracted attention right. wherever he went. Uh, and people wanted to be in his club. People wanted to write and uh, very amusing things for him to read out. Uh, and he benefited from this for years. He was quite open about it he says these people are writing my script for me every morning all i have to do is react to it uh, and bob monkhouse who's a great british comedian i know a lot of people in australia still remember uh, bob monkhouse said uh, terry you've achieved uh, you've achieved something unheard of in show business not only have you got the listeners to write your script for them you put everything of that into a book and you sell it back to them <laughs> So that was his super strength, the fact that he was open to work with the audience yeah. from a comedic perspective yes. because that, that's, yeah, yeah. that's where the connection can come from. You can't rely on it no, totally. No, that's true. But I do quite a lot too. I mean, I'll put a, a, you know, say a few things uh, and then have the people who write in take it further. You know, it's moving it on a little bit. But I, I'm fairly selective about what I'll use. And if there's nothing good coming in, I won't use it. Mm. I mean, I don't think it's... Uh, it's not an open access of course. program. I don't say, right, you, you'll say no. Yep. It's, I'll just You've got to take it. the things that they say and move it on. But it's got to be something that moves it on in the right direction for me or makes it funnier. Um, and then, you know, I'll give full credit, of course. But um, they've got... Uh, you know, it's, it's not... An audience participation program, but it's you know we're using everything that the audience gives us. It's a, it's a dialogue. It's as simple as that. It's not just me talking to the audience; the audience talk back as well. So it is a genuine dialogue. What's the secret to your longevity? One of my radio heroes is a guy in Adelaide, um, my hometown in Australia, a guy called Ken Cunningham, who's still on the radio at seventy-three. He might be seventy-four. He's been on the air for forty years and has, and he does a weekend show now in Adelaide. And the show starts at nine o'clock in the morning, and he's still first into work at seven o'clock and on the 
here at nine, and you can hear it in his voice every every time. He just is so he just absolutely loves it, and his story is extraordinary for lots of other reasons. But I just I, I love the fact that he's uh, he's done this thing that has just filled him with joy for so many years. What's your secret to being? so successful over such a long period of time um i think that's it i mean it's the same story for me really i i I wouldn't do it if i didn't enjoy it i come in every day thinking i'm gonna enjoy it i'm gonna have a good day today and you know every day i come on and some days of course you feel like death uh you start at nine nine thirty and by midday i'm feeling better even if I've got the flu, even if I've got something wrong with me physically, mm. even if I'm feeling miserable or, you know, everything's going wrong, this, that, next thing, by midday, I always feel better. So it's like therapy to me. I mean, I have a fantastic morning. You know, I've, I've come away going, hey, I feel a lot better for that. And that, I think, I hope that communicates itself. So if you're having a, a good time, if you're enjoying yourself in a studio without, you know, being exclusive, if you're enjoying yourself, that will communicate to the, the listener and the listener will enjoy it too. And uh, if that's what's happening, and I think it is, then I'm happy with that. And I, I, because I'm enjoying it, maybe it sounds like that. And if I stop enjoying it, it'll start to sound like that. And either I will say, I'm not doing it anymore, yep. or they will, the, the BBC will say, sorry, you, you've lost whatever it was you had. We never knew what it was in the first place. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's stopped working, whatever it was. But if, when that happens, I won't want to yep. do it again. So... Um, as long as I've still got that, I'm happy to do it. And there's another guy in Ireland called Larry Gogan who sounds exactly the same as your friend in Australia. He's, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10 years older than me, uh, maybe more, and he's still going strong. And yep. I think if that happens to me, I'll be delighted. I've done a lot of things in radio. I've never, ever spoken to a man that talks to 8 million people a week. Ken, it's been unbelievable. Thanks for being a game changer. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. I feel honoured to be, um, you know, noticed in Australia. Um, Ken Bruce has gone mad, I believe, is a well-known... Oh, you know that's a well-known well So, um, so I'm, someone has been... It's yeah. funny, I was going to mention that. So when were you picked up? Uh, or oh, when did someone tell you about uh, that? I got sent a photograph of the signs. Ken Bruce has gone uh, completely yeah, mad. Yeah, yeah, Ken Bruce has gone mad. Ken Bruce has gone mad. Ken Bruce has gone mad. Ken Bruce has gone completely mad! I was saying before the interview, I said, do you know what, as an Australian, I cannot get past the fact that Ken Bruce has gone completely mad. No, and the the one, you know what, the audience is going to... You met the original one who, <laughs> who went first. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ken. And what a great privilege it was to speak to Ken in London. You can check out all of our interviews with Radio Game Changers at radiogamechangers.com and make sure you sign up for our weekly email. Hey, still to come in Season 3 of Game Changers Radio UK, we're going to talk to the host of The Heart Breakfast Show in London, Jamie Thigston. I like to feel that to the nth degree that I've got it covered. And that's... So I go into pretty much every link knowing exactly how i'm going to finish it because anyone can start a link a true professional knows how to end a link uh, and that is absolutely key and i'm not good enough to be able to nail that ending on the fly that's jamie thigston and he joins me next week on game changers talk to you soon game changers radio is a production of craig bruce coaching and bad producer productions Subscribe at iTunes or download episodes at RadioGameChangers.com.